in a sermon series called From the Ashes, all about life that's bursting forth from something that seems to be dead. We've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament and seeing how God has used these two men to help write the comeback story of the people of Israel in captivity in Babylon and now able to go back to Jerusalem, not only just a place, but to go back to their purpose to which God created them for. We're also studying and seeing that God's authoring the greatest comeback story in history through his power and his grace and that we are included in that. And he's writing our little mini comeback stories that all make up this big, amazing story. Now, both Ezra and Nehemiah are filled with these references to powerful earthly rulers that really have no affiliation to God or let alone devotion to him and his world. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah are some of these books in the Old Testament where it's a really interesting intersection between just secular history. You can go up and look at these leaders in any history books and such, and you see that how it intersects with God's purpose in his plan. And we see how God uses these rulers to accomplish his purposes. And it just points to the truth that no matter who sits on the thrones of the world, God is still in control. Do you believe that? I love the first song that we sang, you reign above it all, showing that we can see different people that reign in this world, but we're proclaiming that Jesus reigns above it all, that there is no name higher than Jesus. But even if we believe that, isn't it so easy to forget? <laughs> it's so easy to allow stress, anxiety, fear, pain, whatever that big life situation is, and it just, they just put up the blinders in your life more narrow and narrow until you can only really see that affliction that's right in front of you. Even if you believe that the other stuff is there, it's so easy to forget. And I think it's such a practical skill for Christians to learn to how to take off those blinders, how to realize that even in the cloudy day, the sun is still shining above the clouds. And you, if you fly a lot, you, you look forward to that time in the plane where you reach above the clouds and you're like, ah, there's the sun again. And this morning, I want us to look at several examples from scripture and also just some things going on in history right now that God can accomplish his purpose because of world leaders God can accomplish his purpose sometimes in spite of world leaders, and God can accomplish his purpose sometimes just completely regardless of who's in charge in this world at the time, and that we can trust him to write our own comeback story and can trust that God, even when he, we can't see that he's working, that he's still moving. So let's start by praying. Father, you are the king of this world. You are the king over the nations, and you are the king over every heart. Open our eyes to what you have for us this morning, Father. And as we look at this scripture, let it remind us of your goodness and of your faithfulness, not just in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, but right now in our own lives. Amen. So if you can open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. 
And right at the beginning of this book, we see it instantly starts talking about one of these rulers, Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus II. Just a little bit about Cyrus the Great. He was born around 580 BC into the kingdom of, or the Achaemenid clan in the kingdom of Anshan. And this is what the Middle East looked like at that time. This was shortly after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, okay? And it was roughly four major powers, four major smaller empires at that time. Anshan was not one of them, by the way. You can see it in the red there in the bottom right. And for you history nerds out there, there's a really cool YouTube channel called Kings and Generals. And they has a bunch of cool stories, particularly about battles. And they have a YouTube video about Cyrus the Great that gives a whole history of how he came to power. It's really fascinating. Only about when the time that Cyrus was 40, he came to power and starting as just incredible tactful mind of diplomacy, started with the Median Empire, turning some people to his side, and then at the perfect timing, came and went to battle against them and the whole empire fell. And then just one by one, the more diplomacy and just amazing military prowess just completely took over this entire region. Combined it together to what we know as the Persian empire. So this is the guy that we're talking about right now. And another thing about Cyrus is that he was not a Christian. Of course, back then we didn't call them Christians, but he did not worship the one true God, Yahweh, that we worshiped, we just got done singing to this morning. In fact, he was a Zoroastrian. If you know anything about Zoroastrianism, which I knew nothing before preparing to the sermon, it still exists today over a smaller remnant. But during the Persian Empire, it was like at the height of this religion. And they worship the god Ahura Mazda, which is the god of light and fire. And if you're just, if your mind just went there, Mazda to the Japanese car manufacturer, Mazda, that actually is where the Japanese car manufacturer named their company after this god. Not because they believed in it, but because Ahura Mazda was supposed to be like light and perfection and goodness, and so they wanted to bring goodness to the car industry. So there's your fun fact for the day. I hope it's not the only thing you remember from this morning. <laughs> So here is Cyrus the Great worshiping another god, doing the self-seeking empire. And yet this is what we read at the very beginning of Ezra. It says, in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. And it goes on to list, I won't read the whole chapter, Craig's already took us through some of this, that he allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to build the temple and even help finance part of this. God moved in his heart. And if God can move into the hearts of leaders that don't even know him, shouldn't we be praying for our worldly leaders today? Because it does just make me wonder would God have moved in Cyrus's heart if there hadn't been thousands of Jews praying to God to lead them out of captivity? I don't know. And there's probably no way for us to know. But I, I do wanna just uh, touch on something that might be just a little sensitive. Uh, I've noticed, at least in some of the Christian cultures, Christian communities of which I grew up in, that there's a little bit of a pessimistic 
lack of hope when we think of some of our country's leaders. Especially when those leaders are non-Christians and make some decisions that go against what we would say would be Christian values. And, you know, I hear things like, oh, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, or with these people in charge, no wonder God's abandoning our country. Or, and there's just this, this throw your hands up in the air kind of attitude of, you know what, there's nothing I can do. It's hopeless. You know, it's out of my control. And as we're all at some point probably tempted to think those thoughts or say those things, I want to tell you, you're right. It is out of your control. But it is not out of God's. And if God can move in the heart of a Zoroastrian king of Persia to accomplish his will and his purpose, then he can move in the heart of the president of the United States. He can move in the heart of our governors, our county officials, anyone with power and authority. I mean, they don't even have to know God and he can still change their hearts and move in powerful ways to accomplish his purpose in this world. Let's be a people who passionately and consistently pray for our worldly leaders. So sometimes God does move in the hearts and, and, and makes his plan come into fruition because of worldly leaders, but sometimes it does it in spite of them. I want to give another quick example of something that's happening right now in China. You may have heard things about the One Road, One Belt project that the government of China is doing right now. This huge, probably the biggest project the world has ever seen where they're putting thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of roads, rail, sea routes connecting the world, at least all of Asia, all the Middle East, all parts of Africa to China. And of course, the purpose for this is economic growth, political favor in all these different countries, you know, one step closer to trying to be a world power or maybe in the future, the world power. This is, this is their hope. And what blows me away about this project, if you really start digging deep into it, it's not just like the physical infrastructure of things. It's very, it's very easy to tell really quickly. It's this political favor trying to gain, trying to buy in some of these countries as they continue to grow and grow and have influence in parts of the world. Influence in a lot of places that are not friendly with America too. And not only that, but it's linguistically. You know, for decades, the world, these global powers saying, learn English, learn English, learn English. English is the global business language. It's what every, everyone wants to learn. Now China's saying, you know what? We want you to learn English, but we really want you to learn these small native languages in these places that we're sending you. Okay, we're sending you to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and in Kenya down there. We don't just want you to know English and be able to work in this global market, but we want you to speak, not even like Russian, the regional language up there. We want you to speak Kazakh. We want you to speak Kyrgyz. We want you to speak Swahili so we can go and be even more effective in these native lands. And you see this, and if you're thinking just on a worldly perspective, it almost is like it's worrisome maybe for, for a country that seems opposed to the West or opposed to Christian values, very much so. I mean, the, the, the Chinese government is still very restrictive against Christians in their country. And yet, the Chinese Christian church, what many to believe to be the biggest church in the world, 
you look at what's happening here, and already there are Chinese Christians that are having inroads to these places that a Western missionary could have never dreamed of being able to go to. Having the political favor, having the right passport, even having the government back the learning of a language and the native language to go. They're basically training missionaries. And we're seeing an era where the Chinese church is becoming a huge major player into taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is not what the communist leaders have in mind for this project, but that is how God is using, even in spite of things going on in the world, God is using to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that one day everybody has an opportunity to hear his name. Check out the scripture from Isaiah 26, three through six. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. Sometimes you see God just working, just regardless, you know, of, of who's in charge. I'm reading a book with my kids right now. It's a kind of a children's biography of American missionary Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend was a missionary in the early 1900s, so not terribly long ago. Uh, he started serving in Guatemala, and in Guatemala, he felt this heart and calling towards the Native American population. And so Spanish was now kind of the main language here, but he would go into these Native communities. The Cachiquel people were in Guatemala. And he said, wow, these people are very oppressed. And part of the reason is because they don't even have a written alphabet for their own language, because it's not Spanish, it's the Native language. And so he developed an alphabet for these people and he translated the Bible into the Cachiquel language so that these people could not only just have that eternal life and the hope to read the Bible in their own language, but now they're also had, they could write things down. They could make other books. They could try to get that step out of oppression. God continued to put things on his heart and he ended up having this vision to go to Mexico where there were many, many different native tribes without written languages. And he had a dream to start an organization to translate the Bible into all of these different uh, uh, languages. At the time though, everything was stacked against him. Going into Mexico, this was shortly after the Mexican Revolution that was partly against the Catholic Church because of their rise in political power that they had at that time. So this new revolt, this new leadership was completely against Christianity, was saying, we do not want the church to have any more influence or power in our country. And so there he was, he was at the border of the United States and Mexico trying to go in and be a missionary. He had another couple with them that had committed to going and serving with them and they were stuck. They couldn't get across the border because they said, no, if you're do, coming to do these things, we will not let you in. Well, it was a random connection that God orchestrated when he was in Guatemala. Like the brother of the mayor of Mexico City came down to visit Cam and study what he was doing with the native tribes there. And he said, hey, if you ever need help, let me know. And so at that border, he reached out to the, that brother of the mayor of Mexico City. And through that, he was able to come in. They said, you can come in. Okay, fine. You can live in our nation, but you can't evangelize, can't study other languages, and you can't translate the Bible. 
So here they, here they are in Mexico and unable to do the, the work that God called them to do. And there were weeks going by and no hope at all. And eventually the, the, the couple that was with Cameron, they said, Cameron, I'm so sorry, but like we had, you know, we had successful ministries and such back in the United States. Like we can't, we can't go here if, there's, if this isn't gonna work out. So we're, we're leaving. So they left, Cameron was alone. And I can't help but think verses like Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 were part of his foundation, saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. And he said, I know, or I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know. But I believe that God called me here to do this work, and I just have to trust that he's going to make a way. I have to trust that. So he didn't go back with his friends. He stayed. And I won't go into details because it was like a whole chapter of this, of this book we're reading. That was just about how he was connected with like this leader in the Episcopal Church in America that got him connected to this Episcopal guy in Mexico City, which got him connected to this British philosopher who was kind of behind the, rev- the ideology and the revolution. And then he got connected to this, the leader of all rural education in Mexico. And they, this guy, you know, didn't know... Uh, didn't know Cameron from Adam or Adam, whatever they, you know, in Spanish. And he was so impressed by his connection with this philosopher that through these different conversations, he eventually said, okay, fine, we'll let you do like this experiment. We'll let you live here. We'll let you study these native languages. And hey, maybe that will help us, you know, educate the rural community here in Mexico. And it was just connection after coincidence after connection after coincidence that God orchestrated together to make a miracle where no other missionaries were able to come into Mexico. He was there and started Whitcliffe Bible Translators, which is now the biggest organization translating the Bible in the world. Started there in Mexico. God didn't care who was in charge. God didn't care what things were there. And I don't know exactly how he works or how he does these things. But it shows that distinctive difference between belief and trust. You see, I think that Cameron's friends, I think they believed that God could do his plan. But they didn't believe that God would. I have with me a, uh, so you guys know what this is. It's a rock climbing harness. And if you've ever been rock climbing, if you've used one of these, you know exactly what it is. And you probably remember the first time that you went rock climbing and got into one of these, mainly because of how embarrassing and awkward it feels to put one of these on for the first time. Right, if you're there and you're rock climbing and you're with a group of people and there's generally um, like an instructor, someone who's, who's done that you know, a, a lot of times and he teaches you how to put it on and I'll spare you and not put this on right now. Um, he tells you how to put it on. He goes, he yanks these straps, you know, trying to suffocate your legs seemingly. And um, you get ready and you ask, you know, is it safe? Well, okay, that's a relative you know, uh, question. But this, this is safe. It's been, it's been engineered. It's made out of really good material. It's been tested on huge amounts of weight. Like this thing can hold you. 
if you fall, even a really big guy, if you fall, it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna catch you. So with that little confidence, at least, you go up and you go to the wall, right? So you start climbing up the wall and the instructor's down there belaying you. He says, everything's fine. If you fall, I've got you. And uh, you're going, you're going. And if you remember that first time rock climbing, you know, hopefully if, if you made it to the top, all the way there, struggle. Maybe it was something that you didn't even know that you were able to do, but you made it. You got to the top and there's this feeling of triumph. And I can't believe I did that. And then it shortly followed with the thought of, I'm on the top of a 30-foot wall and there's no other place to go. <laughs> right, so you look down at the instructor and you're like, what now? And he said, well, just lean back. Beep, no, I'm not just leaning back. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna do that. Are you kidding me? I've been gripping this wall this entire time. I can't just lean back. And then we see that distinct difference. There's, there's one thing to believe that this harness can hold you. It's another totally different thing to lean back with the full weight of your body, trusting that this thing's not going to break. I want to do uh, something real quick. We need to close your eyes and um, just think for a second about the, what is an area of your life that you believe God can work in your life, but you haven't fully trusted in him, haven't fully submitted that aspect of your life to him. Where does God need to work in your life right now that you're still holding on to, that you have not leaned back with the full weight of your body? You can open your eyes. I want to do something kind of fun this morning. I need seven male volunteers to come up on the stage with me. All right? So seven guys come up here. I, I, I need at least seven. So you guys start coming up. Come on, Dustin. Here we go. Owen, come on. Get up here, Owen. We need some, some, some younger guys too. Doug, get up here. It can be more than seven. Come on, Doug. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Perfect. Good. You guys come up here. Now, you guys maybe stand in a line right here. What a good group of strapping men we have here. <laughs> All right, so we are going to do a trust fall. All right, now, which one of you would like to volunteer to be the one to fall? <laughs> All right, good, a very willing participant right here. Okay, so just stand over here for a second. Oh, now I want you guys to come, three on this side, three on this side. We'll have the seventh guy in the back um, facing each other here. Now, in my opinion, the best way to do trust fall, you guys put your arms out, and you're actually gonna grab hands like this. Um, this one's gonna not be, not be grabbed. You're gonna grab here, then there, then there. Yeah, 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 you guys got it. And get in, get in pretty tight, because we've got, we've got quite a few people here. Good. All right. Now, here, back up a little second. We need to up the ante a little bit. We need to have you stand on this chair, okay? So stand on this chair, face me. I'm gonna hold it to make sure nothing happens. Okay, or the chair doesn't move. Now, Owen, for a second, turn around and look at these guys, okay? First of all, Keith, right here, Indianapolis police officer made of pure muscle. Now, do you believe that these guys can catch you? Yes. All right, let's put that belief to the test. All right, you guys gripping really tightly? Now, Owen, I want you to put your arms out like this, okay? You're gonna have to duck your head a little bit. 
All right, you guys move in a little bit closer too. All right, now we need to give them a good countdown, three, two, one, okay? Lean back, don't move, don't buckle, believing and trusting that they're gonna catch you, all right? Here we go, guys, ready? Three, two, one. All right, round of applause, round of applause. Okay, thank you guys very much, thank you. <laughs> that, that went pretty well. I was, I was actually not sure how that would go exactly, so thank you all very much. Uh, I want to give one last example of this idea of belief and trust. Um, I work for one of LCC's ministry partners, TCM, and we're really involved with the relief effort in Ukraine right now. And one of our Estonian guys, his name is Mago, he was in Estonia in his country and counseling some of these uh, refugees that were coming into his country. And one of these men that he was talking to, this Ukrainian men, and Russian the, they're speaking Russian because a lot of Ukrainians speak Russian and Mago had grown up having to serve in the Soviet army. So he knew Russian too. And he's talking with this Ukrainian man and encouraging him to trust God in this part of his life. And the man looked at him and said, I believe in God. I don't know if I can trust him. I mean, you really can't blame him too much. At a time where his life is completely turned around, have to flee his home, he's with his family, no, no certainty where they're gonna live, no certainty where they're gonna go. Maybe the thoughts of I'll never return home, who knows what's going through his mind. How can I trust in a God that would allow this to happen with no certainty or no hope in sight? And he continued to talk with this man and meet with him on a regular basis. And week after week would go by and little things here and there, God would provide for this man's life and his family. Place to stay, food, loving Christian community that came around him, welcomed him there. And finally, this man came back to, to Mako and says, I, through what I've seen God working in my life, I know that I can trust him. This man was in like the most vulnerable position that perhaps in any of us, or I can't even fathom of being in. And why do we do, you know, a trust falls like this? It's because this is such a vulnerable, you know, position. You can't brace yourself. It's just all in trusting. And I can't help but think, that this is the position that Jesus was in when he was on the cross. Jesus didn't just believe in God's mission, didn't just believe that God had sent him there for a purpose, but he had to fully live out that trust all the way to the point on the cross. And if we wanna look at one last worldly leader, we can look at Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter two. When he ordered, again, not for any godly reason, but he ordered, ordered for a census to be taken, a census that would leave a Joseph and Mary all the way to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy in Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we see the start of Jesus's life and see how every step of the way, not without difficulty, we know him crying in the Garden of Gethsemane before dying, saying, Father, take this cup from me, but if it's your will, I trust 
in you. So as we end, I want you guys to all stand up, just where you're at. Stand up and put your arms out like this. You might have to twist a little so you don't hit the person beside you. Put your arms out like this and close your eyes. Think back at that thing that's going on in your life that you have not fully submitted to God. Whether it's your finances, maybe it's a difficult family situation. Maybe it's something about your job. Maybe it's something that's in, maybe it's for the first time in your life you haven't fully trusted in God. And just standing there, picture yourself falling back into God who will catch you in his strong arms saying, you can trust in me. So Father, as we stand here a little bit longer with our arms open out like this, we proclaim that you are in control, that you are above all nations over every heart, that even when we don't see it, that you are working, God. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that has, needs to, for the first time, trust in you, that they would make that decision today, that they would fall back in your arms. And Lord, as we all look to you, thank you for writing our comeback story. We trust you. We love you. We want to follow you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.